Hi, this is Richard Benjamin, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Roberts wants a reminder that Laura Nini of This Is Us will join us later on in the hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, on the line with us right now is Mark Cushman. Mark's latest book, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, is a three-volume history of Star Trek slash biography of Gene Roddenberry that chronicles the 10-year period spanning the cancellation of the original Star Trek in 1969 and continuing through the making and release of Star Trek, the motion picture in December 1979, an often tumultuous 10-year period in which Gene Roddenberry experienced a lot of personal and professional setbacks in movies and in television, while Star Trek, of course, became an international phenomenon. We're particularly talking about Volume 3 of the Gene Roddenberry biography during this segment, but all three volumes of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s are available through JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com as well as Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Mark Cushman's website, MarkCushman.com. Okay, Robert Weiss, he may not have screened a lot of episodes before starting production, and yes, his choices for the set, his choices for costume, his approach, particularly to the female characters, to you know de-glamorize them and make make mm-hmm. them look like a more more of a working force. That has all been well documented. It's, it is documented in great detail in These Are the Voyages Volume Three. But let's give him props. He may not have watched the original series, but his wife did, his second wife did, and his daughter did, and he was wise enough to listen to his wife and his daughter with regard to the importance of Spock. Absolutely. Because Paramount uh, didn't want to deal with Nimoy. And you see that brewing in in Volume 2 as well, when they were getting ready to do the TV series. The rumor out there, all of his fans at the time, thought that Nimoy didn't want to do it, and he was refusing to do it. And you see some of those hate letters he got that's in Volume 2. Uh, and his reaction to them, and it's just really disturbing, uh, you know, receiving these letters saying, I hope your career goes down the toilet, I hope you're miserable, you know, you don't want to be part of Star Trek anymore, we wish you hell. And yet he was willing to do it. It's just that Paramount wasn't willing to schedule it when he could do it, because he was on Broadway doing a play. He didn't quit and just come and do the TV series. So he was, And there was that problem with the merchandising where he wasn't being paid, and Shatner wasn't being paid, and so forth. So there were issues that had to be worked out. But he was made to look like uh, he just didn't want to do it, and that's not true. Uh, And then we do give Robert Weiss credit that when Robert Weiss came in, he told Paramount, we got to have Spock. My daughter says so. we got to have him. And we got to work out a deal, and we got to schedule this so that Nimoy can be part of this movie. So we give him credit for that, absolutely. And also, as I said, it's, it's beautifully done. I mean, he, it's well-directed. Uh, he he's really was a very talented director, and you see that in every frame of the movie. I think it was a tragic choice that he locked the bridge down uh, and didn't give himself and his lights and his microphones the movement they needed to do a better job. But everything that was filmed off the bridge is great, and, and a lot of the stuff that was filmed on the bridge is great. I think it's a shame that he de-glamorized uh, Nichelle Nichols and Grace Lee Whitney to the point he did, and, and Majel Barrett. You read that book and you see that they all felt terrible about it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, uh, Grace and Nichelle were in tears when they saw 
how they were going to look in the movie. <laughs> you know? It's like, why do I have to look so drab? Why can't I have a little lipstick on? Why can't I wear earrings? Why, you know, it was just uh, so difficult for them. So I think there were a lot of bad decisions made there. But otherwise, you watch it and you go, this is beautifully done. And that's his talent. Yeah, and Wise also, and this is another takeaway from Volume 3 of your Roddenberry trilogy, Mark, Wise also played an integral role in getting Nimoy to come aboard, even though there was still tension between Nimoy and Roddenberry uh, because of the reasons you laid out with the merchandise and the lawsuits and all that stuff. Sure, sure. Well, that mostly was between Nimoy and Paramount, but Nimoy did have issues with Gene Roddenberry over the blooper reels that he was showing during his uh, convention appearances and his uh, lecturing uh, at colleges and so forth, uh, because Nimoy was very embarrassed by those blooper reels. It was so important to him to stay in character and to be Spock when he was in makeup. And he never wanted photographs of him smiling to get out. He never wanted film of him sucking on a lollipop to get out. Uh, he was a very serious actor. And, and so he said there's a note in there, and I think this is in volume two, where he uh, sends Gene Roddenberry a letter. And he, and he says, I'm taking action against you uh, with, with SAG taking action to keep you from showing this blooper reel. And he said, Gene, how would you like it if I came into your office when you weren't there and I went through your waste paper basket and I found reject pages for a script you're writing and I published them? I mean, you, you don't want your rough drafts of your scripts to get out there. I don't want the rough drafts of my performances to get out there. And that's what this bloop, these blooper reels are. So he and Gene were having a fight, he and Paramount were having a fight, and so forth, but he never at, no, at any time said, I won't do the TV series or I won't do the movie. He said, let's just work out these differences, and I'll do it. And Robert Weiss, as you, you pointed out, Ed, was the one who said, we're going to find a way to work out these differences, because he's willing to do the movie, I want him in the movie, let's get past all this stuff and let's get him here. And, and so you got to give him a nod for that, absolutely. And once he was aboard, and this is very much in character for Leonard Nimoy and very consistent with what we learned about Nimoy and how much he believed in the integrity, not only of Spock, but the integrity of the Star Trek franchise from the first two volumes, Mark, is that Nimoy wanted to make sure that doing a motion picture did not hurt the integrity of the television series. Right. Yeah, he wanted to see the script. Uh, and, of course, the script was being rewritten even as they were filming, <laughs> uh, which made it kind of difficult for him to see the script. Yeah. But it was important to him. He didn't want to say, just say, I'll do any Star Trek you want to make. He said, let, let me see what it's going to be. I want to do it. And if I see the quality, if I see that, that the, uh, the quality is being maintained from this series, then I'm there. Let's just get these other little problems taken care of, and I'm there. You can count on me. And what and what I love seeing, Ed, uh, which is in the book, is in Volume 3 as well, is the transcripts of him and Shatner meeting with Gene Roddenberry and Robert Weiss and uh, Harold Livingston and, and John Povell uh, having these, uh, these meetings uh, in a room next to the soundstage working out the script. If they were having a problem with the scene, they would all come in there and they would hash it out and they would brainstorm and, and so forth. And you see Nimoy and you see Shatner really coming, stepping up to the plate 
and coming in with ideas, and you see their passion, you see how much they care for Star Trek, and how bright they both are, and how totally right they both are in a lot of the things that they're discussing concerning their characters and what might be wrong with the particular scene and so forth. And you get to see all that with some of these transcripts. So that's that was fun for me. These are the Voyages, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. Everything you want to know, the backstory between the uh, cancellation of Star Trek in 1969 and the uh, pre-production, production, and release of Star Trek The Motion Picture in December 1979. These are the voyages Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s by our guest Mark Cushman, available through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group, wherever books are sold, as well as Amazon.com. This is a little side note. And it's not even a chapter. It's sort of like a little beat in between the early stages of development in 1978. But I was interested in what I'll call the quark controversy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, uh, Roddenberry hated quark and feared that it would hurt Star Trek, which I think, yeah. is, I think that's ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. Well, Roddenberry has been accused of not having a sense of humor. And he did have a sense of humor, but it was very subdued and he didn't, get a lot of other people's humor. Yeah. That much is true. And I knew Gene, and I could see that, but I particularly see that in a lot of his memos and letters. Yeah. And so, yeah, he wrote to uh, uh, one of the execs at Paramount, uh, Katzman, I believe it was, and said, you've you got to take a look at this Quark series. They're really making fun of Star Trek. They're ripping Star Trek off. And I don't think this is good for the health of our franchise. So you're about to make a movie here, and you're letting this happen. So yeah, he, he, he wasn't liking it. He wasn't getting it. But I think one of the other one of the executives at Paramount had a problem with it too. I think there's a letter in there from one of the executives saying the same thing. But they didn't have to take action because Quark was canceled after six episodes. Yeah, but it and it's it's funny, a couple of years ago I had a chance to talk to Richard Benjamin and as part of my uh getting ready to talk to Richard Benjamin, I watched a few of those shows. And, uh, I mean, like you said, there's only six or eight of them. There's not, there, there, there aren't that many available. But I thought it as a work of satire and as sort of a... Look, it understood all the trappings of what made Star Trek work, but they just took it on sort of a more ludicrous level, and I thought it was very, very funny. I do, too. I liked it. Yeah. I'm a fan of Richard Benjamin's, and I... I remember that show. I only saw it when it came out. Yeah. And I probably only saw a few episodes, but I thought it was clever, and I liked it. Uh, there were a lot of bad jokes, too. You know, the type of sure. thing where, just like watching Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Some of them are brilliant, and some of the jokes it's, just fall flat. Yeah, it's Buck Henry, you know, so... Yeah, you, yeah exactly. Yeah. But, but, I, but I enjoyed it, and, uh, and I think Gene could have had and should have had a little more of a sense of humor about it. But as you said, it's a blip, because it, it, it doesn't really go anywhere, because... Um, the show didn't last. Yeah, it, it was off the radar so quickly, but they were kind of getting ready to take action against Quark. You can't sue somebody over doing a parody, but if they're infringing on your your trademark, if they're they're you know there's there's a fine line, and if you step over it, uh, you can do something. And uh, they were kind of 
talking about that, as you see in a couple of those letters. I found that very interesting as well. Well, it was also interesting, and I don't remember whether he read for Decker or one of the other characters, but Richard Kelton, who played Ficus on Quark. This is another thing I learned in Volume 3 of These Are the Voyages, Roddenberry in the 1970s, Mark, is that Richard Kelton was in consideration for one of the movie roles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would have been interesting. It would have been interesting, yeah. <laughs> It, it, it certainly would have been ironic, that's for sure. But, that, that's, that's the better word. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm sure he would have done a fine job. Yeah, yeah. But as, as you say, and, and again, this is going back to Robert Weiss, considering he had never directed a movie without a complete script before, he did as good a job as anyone could have done under the circumstances. Yeah, no, I respect him, and I really do like that movie. As a matter of fact, I kind of tie it with Rathacon as my two favorite Star Trek movies. Uh, you know, and I, I understand a lot of people didn't like the first movie that much because of the pacing, there wasn't really any action in it, no fist fights, things of that nature. Uh, but I thought it was the most Star Trek of all of them. It really felt like an expanded episode from the original series, if you, if you compare it to episodes like the Immunity Syndrome, where they go into that one cell, to Amoeba, and the Doomsday Machine. I mean, those didn't have physical action in them. That was the, them being stuck on the ship, dealing with a bigger ship, or the Corbinite Maneuver. And those are some of my favorite episodes. So I don't need fistfights to like an episode of Star Trek, you know? And I think this was a very intelligent story about three... Uh, central characters in this story all going through the same thing at the same time. They were all having a uh, midlife crisis. And I'm talking about Kirk and Spock and V'ger. And, and that's the thing that, that allows Kirk to figure out how to deal with this thing. Because he realizes that V'ger's going through what he's going through. And so I think it's brilliant in many ways. So I'm fine with it. The shame of it is, Ed, is as you find out reading that that volume is that there was a great action sequence in the script and they tried filming it but they were having too many problems filming it so they took it out and that's the scene where Kirk and Spock in spacesuits go inside V'ger in the movie we only see Spock do it and he sees the light show of going through V'ger's memory banks and seeing all the things that V'ger has seen during its travels across the galaxy the universe uh well in the script uh and you see still pictures uh of what they were shooting kirk goes out after him he puts on a spacesuit and he goes out there and he goes after spock and they go through this thing together and they are attacked by these things that sense them as being a infection or an invasion an infection invading the body and these things cover their bodies and try to kill them and try to digest them and everything else but technically, they just had too much trouble bringing that scene off and making it look good, so they made the decision just to take it out of the movie. And that would, would have been the action sequence that we were all waiting for watching this movie, a kind of a climactic battle, in a sense, a man against these things. Uh, and it's a shame that they didn't find a way to make that work. But on the other hand, when ABC aired... Star Trek The Motion Picture for the first time, I think on the Sunday night movie, if I remember correctly, they added about 10 or 12 minutes of footage that had been cut from the theatrical release. And as a result, 
the movie kind of plays better on television. It does. Because, see, here's the other problem that you learn by reading Volume 3, is they had problems with the special effects. They had to fire Abel and Associates uh, one year into the project mm -hmm. when they didn't deliver one usable uh, optical or photographic effect. And they had to bring in uh, other people to redo everything. And they literally finished this stuff uh, a week before the movie was going to premiere. And it had to premiere on that day because Paramount had pre-sold it to a couple hundred theaters across mm -hmm. the country. So there was no pushing it off. Uh, so Robert Weiss was not able to do a test screening. He was not able to do a preview and get screening cards from an audience and then go back in and tinker with the editing as a result. So they literally delivered a wet print to the premiere of this movie. Nobody had seen it. Yeah. And Weiss said it, and Roddenberry said it. They said, if we could have done some screenings and done another cut, this would have been a better movie. And you just kind of gave evidence to that, because when you see the footage that ABC added in, I remember when that happened, and I watched it, and they said, 12 minutes of added footage. And I thought, well, the movie was kind of too long anyway, and it was a little slow. How's that going to help it? And I watched it, and I thought, this is better. Because the stuff that they put in benefited the characters and the story. And it, and it should have been in there in the first place, and it probably would have been in there if they could have done some test screening and had more time. It goes, it goes back to the old adage, which is true, and you know this because, you know, you've worked in the film and TV industry for pretty much all of your career, Mark, is that a lot of times you can save a film through the editing process. Right, absolutely. And a, a movie lives or dies with editing. And they didn't have it. I mean, they just, it was the first assembly cut of this movie that was flown out as a wet print to the theater on December 6th uh, for the premiere in Washington, D.C. And the very next day, it was opening in uh, 200 theaters. And they had every lab in Hollywood making prints to get them out there because it came in so late. And it was all because of the special effects weren't ready. So they couldn't really put it together and see what they had until they had those effects. Jerry Goldsmith couldn't finish the score until they had all this. And so literally, it was one week before the premiere that they were able to see the assembly cut. And they all thought, man, there's a lot of things that we'd like to change, but we don't have time. We've got to start making prints. These are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, volumes 1, 2, and 3, available right now, Jacobs Brown mediagroup.com, amazon.com, wherever else books are sold online. You can follow Mark Cushman, markcushman.com. Take a quick time out, then we'll welcome Laura Nemi of NBC's This Is Us. We come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button this portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 
888-786-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.